Please be sure to visit our Etsy store for some great Warrior Next Door podcast merchandise. And please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Just go to our Facebook page to sign up and receive each series uncut in its entirety. This is the Warrior Next Door podcast, where we share oral histories from veterans whose stories provide an intimate look at world history and how much it still affects us today. All the veterans featured were interviewed by your co-hosts while serving as volunteers for the Library of Congress. Our interviews, over 200 in total, were conducted with veterans who live in our cities, our neighborhoods, and often right next door to us. You can listen to the full-length, unedited interviews from each veteran we feature on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Come join us. So during that time, I get also threatened, chased. uh, and, and, And one time I was almost, you know, like almost killed, you know, uh, that was actually one month before I get my, uh, you know, uh, green card. Welcome back, Warrior Next Door listeners. We have something unique to share with you today, uh, a story that's unique. You just heard a clip from an interview that we conducted recently with uh, Aziz El Rafai. And he is an Iraqi citizen. Well, now he's an American citizen. But during the surge in 2006, when there's a lot of sectarian violence occurring in Iraq, as an Iraqi citizen, he volunteered to work with the U.S. armed forces to help quell the sectarian violence and transition Iraq into an independent state, which is still an ongoing process. And it was fraught with peril with the people in Iraq who volunteered to help the armed services. Many of the activities and exploits that occurred with these interpreters or that they were exposed to are nothing short of heroic. And so, listeners, enjoy and reflect on the stories and the accounts you're about to hear from someone who was born and raised in a completely different setting than many of us are familiar with and had to endure a hell of a lot more than most of us had to to become a citizen of the United States. This is the story of Aziz El Rafai. All right, everybody, welcome to a new series for the Warrior Next Door podcast. We've got a really fascinating story that we're going to share with you today, and it's a very recent interview that Tony just conducted in Denver with a fellow who is an Iraqi citizen who became an, an interpreter for the American forces in Operation Iraqi Freedom. So let's just jump in. Uh, Tony, tell me how you met Aziz Al-Rifai. Yeah, so our audience may know that Ryan and I work in the energy sector. And like any sort of industry or sector, they have conferences and whatnot to kind of network and meet. 
And one of the big ones for us is called the Image Conference, which is really um, two conferences in one. One is the SEG, the Society of Exploration Geophysicists, and the other one's the AAPG, the American Association of Petroleum Geologists. But we're, all this comes to say is I'm at this conference in April of this year of 2023. I'm sorry, not April, August of this year of 2023, sitting back, chilling after the main events, you know, drinking beers, uh, quote unquote networking, which is just code word for drinking <laughs> beer with a bunch of people and staying out really freaking late. And um, this group sat next to us at the table and we just kind of, you know, someone knew someone from this group and we started just hanging out. And the guy sitting next to me, his name uh, is Aziz, uh, but he said, you know, you can go ahead and call me Simon. And I'm like, well, why? Okay, so, you know, why, why can I call you Simon? And he goes, oh, that was my, that was my code name uh, when I was in Iraq as an interpreter. And th- this guy is an Iraqi. He's a native Iraqi, born and raised there. We're going to get into that more in the clips. And I'm like, an, in- an interpreter for, for the U.S. Armed Forces? He goes, yeah, during, during you know, uh, uh, Iraqi freedom. And I, I got a lot of respect, and I've read quite a bit over the years about these interpreters, whether they're in Iraq or Afghanistan or Germans and Japanese who helped us during World War II. Right. You know, a lot of these people risked their lives and were seen as traitors to, for their country by working with the armed forces. But what Aziz was telling me is that there were a lot of people in Iraq who recognized that the regime they were under for decades, the the dictatorial regime of Saddam Hussein was rotten and corrupt and violent, and they welcomed the American invasion. And you don't get that perspective a lot from the news. Uh, the news typically likes to focus on a on a kind of a singular viewpoint that they feel like fits whatever narrative they have based on whatever bias their particular newsroom may have, and each newsroom has their bias. And it was really easy for us during the Iraqi war to just think that every Iraqi was against us, and, and it really wasn't the case at all. Now, over time, there would be kind of uh, an insurrection against the United States in the troops. And this is when he would become involved in this during the surge. But for the most part, Aziz and a lot of other people like him served the American uh, GIs, uh, soldiers, and by extension, the American people valiantly, bravely. They died alongside American soldiers as interpreters. And worse than that, as you heard in that clip, um, they were harassed, uh, assassinated, killed, uh, ex- you know, uh, uh, ostracized in their own community, uh, oftentimes by these militias that developed after the fall of Saddam Hussein. So I asked him to be on the podcast. I was like, man, I'd really like to have you on here. And you mentioned that this is a recent interview. Well, the interview took place just a, I don't know, about a month ago. But here's another recent thing. This might be the youngest person we've ever interviewed. <laughs> I mean, this guy's he born? He's born in 1987. Oh my God. Right? So he's what, 30, he's 35 years old? That's the year I graduated high school. I know. <laughs> you, you, you see what I'm saying? I mean, so I, I, I was thinking about this is like, I don't think we've ever interviewed someone this young before. They've always been older than us or really, really close to our age, like Jesse Gilman. Yeah. So most, when we start these, um, when we start these these podcasts, we typically start off by asking the veterans where they were over when Pearl Harbor was attacked. Well, he wasn't alive. In fact, he wasn't alive for a lot of this stuff. So we're going to kick off this interview, Ryan, where I basically just asked him, you know, how old he was, where he was born, what it was like growing up in Iraq, because a lot of Americans may not know that. All right, let's jump into it. Yeah, I was born in uh, 1987. Uh, actually, I was born in April, which was 
during the war between Iraq and Iran. Yeah, so so tell me a little bit about the the town you're from and what your earliest memories were growing up when it came to the all the turmoil that was going on in Iraq at the time. Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, it was very basic life for me. Uh, I was born in 1987, uh, in April, uh, which was during the war between Iraq and Iran, because uh, the war ended in, in uh, August 8, 1988. So a year after I'm born. Uh, I was born in South Iraq, small town, uh, called Zubair, which is very close to Kuwait country. That's in, in Basra. Uh, province. Uh, it was a very basic life, you know, f- from the uh, war between us, like between Iraq and Iran, into another war, which was Desert Storm in 1990, uh, into the country being sanctioned. So uh, it was very uh, simple life where we had very small resources of technology, small resources of, uh, you know, um, basically all the activities every day is is uh, repetition for the next day. I go to school, come back home, you know, father go to work, come back home, uh, small community, everybody know everybody, all the neighbors know each other. Uh, very simple life. Uh, up until uh, the 2003, the war, uh, which happened, Freedom War, that changed the whole region, the whole, first started with Iraq, but then later the whole Middle East region. So tell me a little bit more about, I don't think a lot of Americans know what it's like to grow up in Iraq. How, how big was the, was the town? What was your house like? Um, how many brothers and sisters you have? I mean, what was it like growing up there? Yeah, so Iraq is actually uh, smaller than Texas. It is about 60% of Texas in land. And there are about 45 million people there. I believe here in Texas, I live in Houston now, uh, I believe we have 40, uh, 29 million people, 29 million people in Texas. And, you know, we have more land. Uh, so um, everybody there know everybody uh, because of we have less distractions there, you know, especially before the 2003 Uh so that's as far as, as, as the land, you know. So what about how big, how big of a town did you grow up in? About how many people were there? Yeah. How would I, you describe it? Yeah. The, the town is basically, I grew up in, in, uh, in Basra province. Uh, I would say from the very north to the very south, it takes like two and a half hours to go through the whole town, uh, there. So I don't really know as far as the actual like number for, for, you know, the, the area size, but I know it's like two and a half. I would say maybe um, my town is, I would say as big as San Antonio here, you know, or yeah, maybe, maybe if you add the, the surrounding territories, because there are some territories to Basra, uh, it would be like as, as big as Houston, which is really good, you know, really big size uh, city. So growing up, I mean, where did you learn English? What was, what was school like? How, how did that happen? Yeah. So uh, speaking of, 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 of my house, uh, you know, I, I was born into an educated family. Uh, I have four sisters and one brother. Uh, one of my sisters, she has a PhD in biology. 
my other sister, she is a lawyer. And my third sister, she is a business, has business administration. And the fourth sister has a, uh, a bachelor's in, and she's a history teacher. She has a, a degree in, in education. Uh, I have one brother. He's also a teacher as well. Uh, but on my family side, on both father and mother's side, they're more into the medical field. So I grew up in a house that they want me to go to the medical field, basically to become a doctor. Uh, that was, you know, uh, the, 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 the childhood dream. Uh, my house was a nice house. It's a very big, nice house. Um, you know, we lived like a medium level life. Uh, I mean, as far as like uh, the class, we were middle class. We were not from the very rich people or very poor people. We were like, I would say upper middle class. Yeah. So just a quick kind of a summary of what Aziz just shared with us. So he grew up in a town or not town, but the region called Basra, which is a very Southern portion of Iraq that is adjacent to Kuwait. And uh, for those who may have remembered the Gulf War uh, uh, in, in 1987, I'm sorry, 1991 desert storm, that was due to the invasion of Kuwait from Iraq through places like Basra. Um. In 2003, when Operation Iraqi Freedom started, where George Bush and his administration uh, had enough of no-fly zone violations and all these things, these violations that occurred during the armistice uh, that occurred when um, you know we defeated his armies in 1991, uh, he would have been right there. He would have been 15 years old, living in Basra, his parents were middle class. He had four sisters and a brother. They were all educated or going to get educated. So just to kind of let you know, this is this is the setting for him as these forces started to roll in. So in his next clip or series of clips, he's going to talk a bit more about the culture of the time before the war started. Was it uncommon? We hear a lot about different Middle Eastern cultures and and what you know women are allowed to do or not allowed to do. It sounds like correct me if I'm wrong, that in Iraq at that time, when your parents were raising you guys, that there were opportunities for, for men and women to pursue college and do those sort of things. Is that correct? Yeah. Iraq has always been uh, a country where it's not uh, ruled by one religion or by religion. Generally, it was a country where you see uh, different uh, people from different religions and different backgrounds, like you see Christians, you see Jewish people, you see, uh, you know, Muslims from different uh, creeds, Sunnis and Shias, and also you see people uh, called Azidis uh, and and people who also don't practice any religion as well. Uh, Iraq was never uh, like uh, a religion, a, a country where it's based off religion and and and. You know, it's not like r ruled by rules where like, for example, Saudi Arabia, where, you know, women have to dress, you know, otherwise they, they will be uh, subjected to certain, you know, rules and, and things like that. I think now they don't have that anymore. Uh, but Iraq has always been open. Um, there, there's some interference from the neighboring countries, Iran and Saudi, uh, who run by, you know, you can say religious government, but Iraq, because Iraq is in between. So you see that interference from the two countries, but in the same time, 
the government there does not uh, is not biased to any uh, religion. So yeah, I mean, so that's new to me, um, and, and probably just because uh, I just didn't really dig into uh, the the culture of of Iraq. I assumed when hearing about all this stuff on the news back then, you heard about Saddam Hussein all the time, and he was being a Sunni you know, Muslim. Mm -hmm. And then there were the Shiites and the Sunnis and all these different sects, basically that, that that's S E C T S <laughs> that, that were um, in the country. And I assumed since it was a Middle Eastern Muslim country, that, that, that was a, another country that was very strict from a religious standpoint and that perhaps Saddam uh, enforced that. But this is new to me, and he was saying there are people that that didn't practice any religion at all. I mean, yeah. it sounded like it's a fairly, from a religious standpoint, a fairly open society. Well, and to me, that's yeah, totally. And that to me is part of the tragedy of what happened in Iraq. Iraq was an ally of the United States when they were fighting against Iran, basically around the time when, you know, when Aziz was born, the Iran War was just winding down before mm -hmm. you know the war the United States would occur. So here you had this secular country in the Middle East, and yes, they had a dictator, but it it felt like, hey, you know, this could be a new type of model for forward thinking for this area. Yeah, where women can go and they didn't have to wear any sort of special garb, they didn't have to hide their face, they can get an education. Uh, there are people who could be a religious. It, I mean, it, it felt like okay, this this feels like kind of progress for a lot of people in this region who historically have been oppressed. And it's just a shame that that their their dictator Saddam Hussein took them on the path that he ultimately did, um, because of the chaos that would ensue. But mm -hmm. yeah, prior to this, what it sounds to me, it, 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 it sounds like you hit on this as well, was this was a pretty open, relatively liberal society for that area. I, I'm surprised by that. I just <laughs> that's news to me. It's not that. I mean, perhaps I just missed that back back in the day, but it, it's. Completely new. That's information that I didn't know. Yeah, so. his sisters are educated. He's yeah. educated. He's middle class. He's not talking about being upper class. He's a middle class dude with a family. His dad's a doctor, and they're getting educated. It yeah. feels a lot more like uh, like like Israel or mm -hmm. other countries in the Middle East that have more progressive viewpoints. Which this goes back to this, but you know, it's it was interesting to me that his his name that was given to him was Simon. Yeah, which is a Jewish name. Oh, we're going to get to that. Okay. <laughs> so I was surprised about that, and I wondered what the conversation was around that. So it sounded that's like a, it was going to be— That's some... a beautiful piece of foreshadowing, Ryan. <laughs> You're going to find out where Simon came from, and okay. it's not from anywhere that you could think of right now. I thought, was well, it some form of Aziz? <laughs> no, is it, it is the, not. Is it the Iraqi version of the name Simon? I mean, anyway. No, it's going to be—you'll hear it. It'll be interesting. Okay. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Yep. Uh, when— when uh, you know, when I, when I grew up and even my, my parents and from, you know, when like up until now, actually now it's more Americanized at, at the, at the time being, uh, but like, it's always, you know, women and men, you know, together. What are your, what are your earliest memories of what, what, you know, the, the, the issues that faced Iraq? I mean, you were basically born while a war was going on, it ended, and another one picked up again in 1990. I mean, what was what? What's your recollection of of how how did the war affect you or your family? The wars, I should say. 
Yeah, the wars definitely affected everybody and, 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 and me and my family. I speak, you know, you know uh, about me and my family. So um, the first war, I mean, wars in general, they're, they're not something we should go through, especially now when I see what's happening between, you know, Palestine and, and Israel. It's very sad to see that because there are always victims in war. Uh, and those victims can be, you know, my doctor can be, you know, my son, my neighbor, anybody. It's very sad. So uh, during the war between Iraq and Iran, many people got killed. I was too young to remember. Uh, I, I was only one year. I do remember in my head, like the, the, the sound of, 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 you know, bombing and everything else. Uh, I do remember that, but I don't remember the actual, uh, you know, events of everything. I, I do remember actually one thing. Um, probably I was six months old and I was, you know, sleeping on a, on a mattress. And I remember, uh, that I was dragged into underneath the stairs because the stairs act as a bunker. So that stayed in my memory when I was six months old. I don't remember all the events and everything else. My family, uh, immigrated within the country during the war because I'm from the very south, very close to Iran. And we used to always get hit. So we, we immigrated to a different town of Iraq from town to town. So the war created instability for us, uh, you know, um, changes, you know, chaos. Uh, then the, the war started in 1990, created the country to be poor, to be sanctioned, you know, to not have many resources and to be closed as well. So Iraq was like a closed circle. Yeah. So what he's talking about there is a couple of things. One, you know, I, Iraq was in a war with Iran for over a decade and, and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of soldiers on both sides died from that particular war. And weren't there chemical weapons used in that conflict, which was part of the reason we were concerned about Saddam and his chemical weapons program? Yes, because both sides, and and Saddam in particular initiated it, but both sides um, were really using weapons that at that time were trying to be phased out by other Western militaries, right? And they were using them. This was basically a religious war between the Sunnis, which is a sect of uh, Islam that was dominated um, by Iraq, and and the Shia, who were basically, excuse me, a theocracy in Iran that still exists to this day. So what he's talking about is interesting. First, he talks about Early memories of the war in Iran and his company, com- company, and his his uh, his family having to leave uh, that where they were in Basra because they were too close to the front lines, and it just a few years later the the war in against um, Iran ends in 1988, and then Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait, yeah. and when that happens, we place sanctions on him, and in 1991 we have this huge coalition of the of the willing. We invade Iraq, we destroy their armies, and we um, end up uh, basically creating the conditions where we didn't overthrow Saddam Hussein, but we, we, we put no-fly zones and made other restrictions in place, which were routinely violated by Saddam Hussein. So then we started to sanction the country. So to add a bit more detail on to the history here, um, Saddam invaded Kuwait and seized a large amount of oil production mm-hmm. in yeah. the region, which 
meant he would have control of a lot and it would shift the balance of power a bit in the region. And that was, I think, what where we were coming from, that we can't have this guy who has chemical weapons in charge of a, a large amount of the oil production in the Middle East. And so we came in to, uh, we invaded Kuwait. We had Operation Desert Shield at first. Yep. It became, you know, a Desert Storm. Yep. And it was a hundred hour ground war. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you know, I remember that distinctly. I remember being where I was at whenever they announced the invasion had started. Yeah. I was think. I mean, this is how uh, dumb I was. I was standing in a bar with my buddy drinking a beer watching, oh, they just invaded, you know, Kuwait <laughs> yeah. and everything, you know, is this going to, are we going to get drafted, you know, and everything. And, you know, I was just a, a numbskull back then about it. I should have been involved and in, in helping out and everything. But, but anyway, the point is, um, it was all about the balance of power and, and the power that comes with the oil industry. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. And the wealth that comes with it yeah. and what you can do with that wealth, especially with someone like Hussam, Saddam Hussein, who uh, would brutalize his own people. And in fact, some of the sanctions that were imposed on Iraq had to do with there were uprisings in the south. The no-fly zone basically separated northern Iraq, which was where Baghdad and the Kurds and the, and the Sunnis were, from southern Iraq, where the Shias were, because the United States recognized that you know the 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 the, the Shias, although a a majority in terms of population, were a minority in terms of power. And he got, he would, he would, um, get around the sanctions we placed in no fly zone by using helicopters because helicopters were allowed because they were thought of as like traffic control or medical transport and put like sarin gas. I'm sorry if this is something from a cultural standpoint that might offend people. I'm laughing at the brazenness of Saddam Hussein. Yeah. 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 You know, and that he's like, well, let's see. How can we get around this? Um, we've got helicopters. They probably think it's humanitarian stuff when we're using our helicopters. Yeah. Let's put sarin gas on it. Totally. (laughs) And and, and they went through and then they would go through these Shia villages and they would kill thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people using sarin gas. So we started to put sanctions on them. So I want for the audience, especially younger members of the audience, um, to, 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 who might not have lived through this to recall that the reason that sanctions were placed on Iraq is because Saddam Hussein was doing shitty things like this. Yeah. And he's talking about the effects of those sanctions that they were made poor prior to the war with the United States, when they were fighting against Iran, they still had wealth. They still had a wealth from their oil and their minerals and things like that. That war ended. The, the, the misadventure of Saddam Hussein creates the conditions for the country to become really, really poor. And that's the things he's talking about. And you're going to hear um, a bit more about the isolation associated with these sanctions and also living under a regime that makes your people small, which is something that Ryan and I are always trying to warn people against. Uh, we don't know what the other world world ha- has, you know. We were well, we were regulated by um, two TV channels uh, by the government. They they show us everything they want to show the people, and they hide everything they want to hide. Up until the two thousand three, when the Freedom War occurred, and uh, you know, it, 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 Iraq wasn't ready for, in my opinion, for the, the, you know, the democracy, you know, you can say that, uh, it, it's a great thing to, to, to have democracy. You know, it's always amazing, but you know, everything comes in stages. You can't just transition from nothing into, into having everything. So in the normal world, if the government's good, they basically will 
allow people to gradually, for example, have cell phones, more TV channels, more technology, you know, uh, open to the world. But Iraq suddenly had everything. Okay, so I just wanted to jump in. You know, early on in that clip, he talked about that they only had two, yeah. two, two TV channels. You know, and they the government controlled everything that people, the, the all the information that came to the people. You heard him stuff. talk about like shutting down the internet and yeah, they technology was stifled. Yeah, well, yep. of course we didn't have cell phones really back then either. <laughs> I mean, not as widespread as they are now. But I remember um, the thing that everyone marveled at was this guy, this poor guy that was basically the public spokesperson for Saddam Hussein. Everybody called him Baghdad Bob <laughs> because he would get on TV and his entire city would be aflame yeah. from the bombs of American forces attacking and all this sort of stuff. Yet he was telling us that we were losing, you know, and yeah. he was saying that he's going to take us to the gates of hell and, and all this sort of stuff. And, and I think later on, after the war ended, he was captured somewhere, um, <laughs> like in an airport or something like that. Yep. And they had a picture of him. He just looked like a regular dude. He was kind of like a celebrity. Go. Yeah. They were like, yeah. he was just a mouthpiece <laughs> for idiocy. And my, my understanding is what, what they were trying to do with Baghdad Bob was to convince the large population center in the north around Baghdad that everything was fine as the inver- as the invasion was coming from the south, and and I, from what I've read, uh, and the book is called Cobra Two. It's a book about the invasion of Iraq uh, in two thousand and five for Iraqi freedom. Uh, sorry, two thousand and three. Is 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 that it worked? That when the American forces rolled into Baghdad and did what they called a thunder run, which meant they didn't just roll into Baghdad. They took a couple of armored brigades and just busted all the way through to the center of the city, cordoned off an area around an airport, and then resupplied the troops from the inside out. We ended up invading Baghdad from the inside out. And they said that people were walking on the street absolutely gobsmacked to see like U.S. armored columns rolling through the street. Well, on the TV... Baghdad Bob is telling them that the U.S. forces are being obliterated down in Basra and just south of, uh, of not just south, but, you know, 50 kilometers south of Baghdad. It was it was amazing. I mean, and it was I mean, obviously, the guy was pure, just purely a propagandist. He was there to just completely lie to the Iraqi people and, and lead them to think something else was going on that truly was not going on just to control the population. So there wasn't. My, you know, widespread, uh, you know, surrendering or, or overthrow, or yeah. overthrow. Uh, anyway, so. so I wonder, I wonder where Baghdad Bob is now. I don't know. It'd Do you think we keep him on our podcast? <laughs> he speaks <laughs> really good would, English. That would, <laughs> he does. I, yeah, I, we'll have to research that. We'll yes. see if we can work our magic, Tony. I don't know. Because <laughs> yeah, if he's like chilling someplace like in, in Cyprus or something, I don't know. It's been a while since he's had his 15 he minutes of fame. in Denver for all we know. Yeah, we, can, we can have him on the show. And he's like, oh, yeah, I was told to do a bunch of really stupid jobs. It would be awesome. Oh, all right. Well, let's jump back into it. Sorry, this is a little bit lighthearted because as soon as he mentioned, you know, they only had two channels and they controlled the amount of information that came to people. Baghdad Bob immediately popped into my head and I had to jump in there. So. Anyway, we'll get back into this now. Okay, so you know this interview is—it's gotten a little lighthearted right now. And it, no offense to Aziz, he's going to start to get into some stuff that happened to him that it's deadly serious. But one of the things that really wasn't serious about the war was again this this uh, Baghdad Bob, and we had a chance to go ahead and see if he was still with us, uh, where he's living, uh, just while we were putting this uh, or producing this podcast. And it turns out 
that the guy's name is Al-Shahaf, and he gained something of a cult following in the West following the war. Uh, he, he has appeared on T-shirts, cartoons, an internet phenomenon. In the UK, a DVD documentary was sold about his exploits and his televised interviews, and they called it Comical Ali as opposed to Chemical Ali. And in last, uh, it is known in 2008, he was living in the UAE, the United Arab Emirates. So we just felt like, hey, you know, we had a chance to do some quick research while we were, you know, going through these clips of, uh, of Aziz. And it's like, in case anyone wants to know, this is some pretty amazing stuff. So, hey, Google it, internet it, check it out. <laughs> it's, the most, it's the most surreal sort of piece of propaganda. Oh, and one more thing. If you go on to Wikipedia and they have like a see all cell section, which is nothing more than, hey, this person kind of trends with and is similar to these things as well. It's, it reads, see also things like Axis Sally from the Germans, uh, Hanoi Hannah from Vietnam, uh, Tokyo Rose from Japan. So Wow, with the elites. Huh? He is with the elites. He, he has arrived. He had his 15 minutes of fame, and I'd sure love to have him on our podcast. But I mean, you know, those, those people were more radio personalities, sometimes turncoats like... Uh, uh, what, what like was Tokyo the, Rose. What was about, what, who was the British? Lord, Lord Ha-Ha. Oh, Remember yeah. Lord Ha-Ha? <laughs> he was, these were people who were turncoats that, that actually switched over to the other side. Some of them were actually, you know, like Japanese citizens and everything. But, th- but this guy, Baghdad Bob, that was his job. Yeah. He was like Joseph Goebbels. Yeah. I mean, he was a propaganda guy. Yeah. So he was out there, you know, trying to convince people that, the cities weren't on fire and burning. And As there, they weren't, there weren't Americans walking in front of you right now in the streets. I want to add one more thing. I can still remember watching CNN and they were playing a live news conference of him saying everything was fine. Nothing's going on. And then right next to it, they were showing live bombs landing in Baghdad while he was down TV oh saying that they were winning the war and pushing the American devils back. Oh, geez. Okay. Oh, I, what, what a job. What a job to have. All right. All right. On, on to some more serious stuff. <laughs> so you would have been 15 years old when basically the second Iraq war, the, the, the invasion of Iraq occurred. Yes. Uh, and you, and you, I think you referred to it as the, the freedom war. Is that, yeah. is that, is that, is that how it's generally seen in, in Iraq or is that a term that you use? It was the name of, of the, of the war, freedom war. Uh, some people, uh, see it as, as a freedom war. Uh, you know, I see it as a freedom war. Uh, and some people, uh, see it as a, um, you know, like occupation. You can say that, you know, like occupying Iraq. I see it as a freedom war to open Iraq for technology, for the world. For being, you know, investments and everything else, uh, but you know, it, it depends on. I mean, it, it's it's kind of fall like into some people see it different way, and yeah, that's a very, <laughs> you know, that's a very that's a question. Like if you ask anybody, they they may say, yeah, it's a freedom war. Iraq had to be changed. You know, it, it was ruled by a government where don't want to listen to um, anybody. They were bullying everyone. Uh, you know, if you, uh, do what they say, if you go by the rules, if you go to your job, come back home, go to school, come back home, do like, as you like, you know, normal life, then you're fine. Uh, but if you want to raise your voice and say, look, I disagree with this, then you probably are not going to be seen anymore. It's like a dictatorship. 
So in my opinion, that, you know, that's something that needed to be changed. And, and if the United States did not interfere, probably will never change and will stay like this until today and maybe many more years in the future. So what did you just hear? You just heard, you just heard Aziz say that, that there, if, if you kind of did your daily thing in Iraq under Saddam Hussein, you're probably okay, but any sort of, uh, any sort of pushback on any sort of policy and you would disappear, you would go away into a system very similar to a concentration camp. It was well known that, um, that Saddam Hussein modeled his regime and his leadership after Adolf Hitler. Uh, he read his books. He thought he felt like that, that Adolf Hitler would be the model that he would employ to, to rule Iraq. So concentration camp was a word I selected uh, specifically. So what does this mean for those who are alive during um, this 2003 operation, Iraqi freedom? There was, again, a lot of contention between what the military said was happening and what their objectives were and what some news media outlets were, how they were casting the war as being, you know, highly unpopular in Iraq and whatnot. Um, it would become unpopular in Iraq during the occupation that the United States wasn't particularly ready for. But when the invasion incurred, occurred, they were celebrated. They were they were welcomed into Iraq with open arms because they realized that the only way to eventuate change in this case was to have an outside power come in and do it for them. So it started off as a very popular war, and it would only become unpopular when the United States and their allies uh, mismanaged, many people would say, the occupation of Iraq. And he's going to talk about more about that later. But I just wanted to stop and, and amplify something I said in the intro, that this was a war initially that was popular amongst most Iraqis. Was there amongst a circle that, that you knew, because that's all you can really comment on, right, are the people you know, your friends, your family, the people... Was there a, what was it like under Saddam Hussein's Iraq? Did you, were, was, were, was the population so fed this, um, this news speak from these state run news agencies that were they, were they, uh, agreed, uh, with Saddam Hussein? Or was there a lot of people who knew that maybe there was a better way to be governed? So, you know, when, when you're governed by fear, you don't really express your opinion. You know, that's, that's the, that's the point. You know, there was elections every year there. Like, you know, every four years, actually, we have, we had elections in Iraq, but people, they always vote for the same president because if they don't, otherwise they will be subjected to so many consequences. And, um, I mean, of course they, they are not happy with the way life was like, we did not have what the other world have, like some people travel to different parts of the world uh, or proceed, you know, that some guests come in from Lebanon or United States, you know, people live in the United States, come back to visit their families and, and they tell them stories and they say, oh, wow, you guys have all of this. We don't, we don't, we don't have here. So they're not happy with, with what they had, but they can't say anything because they're not power, power, uh, they're not, um, they don't have the power to, to make a change. When you're, you're 15, um, uh, in March of 2003, March 19th to be exact, the U S invades mm -hmm. Iraq. Where, where were you and what do you remember about that day? Yeah, I was, uh, in 2003, 15 years old, um, 
I was in school, in high school. Uh, they announced it as a uh, basically um, a, a natural, you know, or a disaster to a wartime to, to stay home. Uh, we took some time uh, off. The war did not last for a long time uh, because uh, as soon as the coalition forces entered the country through the south, which is my town, there was not enough resistance, to be honest. People at that time, they kind of gave up and, and they saw how much the, uh, like the power that the coalition forces came with. They, they, I'm talking like air force and land and everything. So they knew this is going to be a war that, you know, will be lost. Basically, they just gave up on everything. They left. You saw some resistance. So the war lasted maybe for, I would say, in my town, maybe five days. That's not a long time for the war. Uh, but the problem is what happened after the war. So when the United States military and the coalition forces cut through Iraq, through the south, they went to the other uh, provinces, other places. Uh, every It became like a chaos. So, uh, you know, the Iraqis are nice people, but there is always that, you know, that apple, you know, uh, in the box. So some people went to the, you know, mi- military stations. They, they took, uh, they confiscated the, the weapons, you know, the, the munitions. Uh, even tanks, everything, you know. And the South is mostly farms, so they drove these tanks, they took all these grenades, they took all these weapons into their backyards, into their homes. And that those weapons were used later, after the war. I would say the real war started in 2004, a year later, because that's when internal civil war was happening between tribes War against the United States military, against the British military, against all the coalition forces, using those weapons that were, which were taken from the, the, the military bases. Yeah, I agree 100% with Aziz on this. The real war did not start for the United States. The casualties for the U.S. military did not start to incur in significant numbers until the war was over during the occupation, during the transition of power from what was Saddam Hussein's regime to a um, an occupation to what we would hope and what we hope would happen quickly, which is a new Iraqi government. And you just heard him say what some of the issues were. All these weapons were laying around. Basically, the U.S. and their coalitions came through like a buzzsaw and ripped through most of the country. And most of the Iraqi uh, units, whether they were National Guard or standing military, just left. They were done. They surrendered or they just went home. They left their weapons behind. And these weapons were cached throughout the country by bad actors. And they would be turned against the United States as these militia groups started to form uh, resistance towards the United States. So what you're hearing here, and Aziz is 100% correct, obviously, because he was there. He would know more than we would, uh, was this was the start of the real war. The real insurrection was the caching of these weapons in places like southern Iraq. Um, for me, I continued with, with, with my life, uh, 2015, 16 and 17, I had a bad incident. My, my, my father got killed in the war. Uh, I, I say in the war, but it, it was in a war. He got killed in, in our own house, uh, as a victim, one of the victims, uh, in the war. So as I mentioned, wars are, that is not like a war happened and then 
finished and then everything back to normal. When a war occurs and finish on a specific date, there are many, many things happen after that date and continue to happen until things change. So it became like a chaos. And, you know, for us, we had a nice house and, you know, it was a temptation for militias, people with, with weak minds to, to take over, you know, other people, property, houses, cars, like smuggling, all these kind of things. So, um, in 2006, three years after the war, uh, we were threatened to leave our town, uh, and, 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 you know, give, give up our house, just basically leave it. Uh, and based on that, we got, we received multiple, uh, threats. Uh, and actually we were going to leave just to get, you know, because we only have one life and, you know, money we always can make back, but, you know, we, we cannot get our life back. So we were going to leave, but it was the timing where, uh, you know, I was in college, I was in college, the first year in college, uh, after, you know, 2006, because when war started, I was in high school, but then I was in, in college. Uh, my sister was in college and my father said, you know, let's just wait. Uh, a couple, you know, a couple months, summer holiday, and then we just kind of evacuate and leave the house and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll start fresh and let them take over. Uh, within that time, maybe a couple weeks after, or after, uh, you know, some, you know, uh, militias came in into inside our house and they shot my father. So that's when I started to, you know, be more responsible of providing for my family and that, and that, so that, that was the day that was a, a life changer for me in 2006 before the 2006, the first uh, three years of the war where, you know, chaos, you know, many, many good and bad changes, technology, you know, bad things as well, uh, killing and things like that. But for me personally, 2006 was the date that made the change in my life because when my father got killed. Oh, um, in full disclosure audience, when I was interviewing uh, Aziz for this series, I, I wasn't prepared for uh, what, what he just said about his father being murdered uh, through sectarian violence, through these militias that were, quite frankly, and still are, I believe, uh, harassing and killing innocent people over there for the most inane reasons imaginable. Um, so stick around for our second installment next week where Aziz speaks more to this sort of senseless violence, how it affected him, and created the conditions for him to ultimately become a partner with the U.S. military, the occupying force as an interpreter in Iraq. Well, we hoped you guys enjoyed the first of several installments featuring Aziz El-Rafai, the interpreter from Iraq who helped allied forces and had kind of a tortuous path towards, spoiler alert, American citizenship. Um, the Warrior Next Door podcast is really produced, created everything by two people, uh, myself, Tony Lupo, and the co-host, Ryan Fairfield. 
And so we decided uh, several months ago to start a premium subscription where people can pay $5 a month to help, you know, offset the costs incurred for us to produce this. It's not any get rich quick scheme by by any measure at all, but it helps us immensely uh, to offset uh, production costs, software costs, the the travel that we do to various uh, sites. And we just want to recognize some of these people who are basically taking stock and ownership in the Warrior Next Door podcast by helping to support us. And some of these people include, in no particular order, uh, Len Gardner, Kevin Bradshaw, uh, Thomas Stoichel or Steckel, S-T-O-E-C-K-L-E. Thank you very much for your support. David Brookins, uh, Carolyn Fairfield, uh, Bill Lucas, Bobby Heddick, Angel Neuschwander, I hope I pronounced that right, Jamie Burr, Don Quattlebaum, Nathan Geyer, Bruce Tolda, Jason Muntz, and several more. Again, it is um, not only does the support you provide financially help us, but it really keeps us going knowing that we have listeners out there who are willing to support us financially to allow us to keep doing what we're doing. So know that we're appreciative. You're never taken for granted. And uh, we hope that you enjoy the work that we continue to do with your support, with making sure that these stories are heard. Until next week.